Whether you're in the room with us physically or in the room with us digitally online, thank you for joining us at Bellevue today for church. Hope you've enjoyed worship so far, and I hope that you're continually blessed as we jump in the Word. We're going to go to Mark chapter 10 today. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a gentleman uh, in the Bible who was struggling with the fear of missing out. Now, millennials and Gen Zers, they have coined this acronym. It's called FOMO, F-O-M-O, and it stands for the fear of missing out. It's, it's the feeling that someone experiences when they begin to question, are other people having more fun than me? Are other people making more money? Are other people living a better life? Are other people marrying a better wife? That kind of question that may be flooding our minds as we see things on social media or see things on the internet, it's a real question. It's a real struggle. But here's the result of the fear of missing out. It leads to two spots, two different camps. Number one, you commit to everything because you don't want to miss out on anything. Some of y'all committed to three different Super Bowl parties tonight because you don't want to miss out on the fun. The other flip side is you commit to nothing because you're continually waiting on the best thing. And I'm not just talking about today about the fear of missing out on Friday night plans or a job interview. I'm talking today from Mark chapter 10 about a man who had the fear of missing out on eternal life. And so today we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 verse 17. So we're going to pick up, if you would, read with me as we walk through this chapter 7 or chapter 10 verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is talking about Jesus. He's going from one city or one town to the next town. And as he is setting out on his journey, it says, A man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him a question. Now, this man, real quick, just to let you know, from Matthew 19 and Luke 18, we have other accounts of this story. We know that this is the rich, young ruler. Dr. Rogers calls him a man of position and a man of possessions. That's who we're dealing with. And this guy runs up to Jesus. He's eager to see Jesus. But then he also kneels down, paying respects to Jesus, and then he asks a question. He's inquisitive. He's curious about something. And I'm going to be honest. He asks a great question. Listen to what he says. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's no doubt that the man of position and possession has a little bit of an idea about what an inheritance is. And he's asking the question, how do I get my name added to the will? How do I make sure that I end up on the right side of eternity? And here's what's funny about Jesus in this moment. Instead of addressing the question, he avoids the question and addresses his theology. Listen to what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus was trying in this moment when he had a question about eternal life, he's really getting to the heart of the man by 
clarifying on two theological truths. That there is no one good except God alone, and that Jesus is good, therefore he must be God. Amen? And almost to kind of put an extra, you know, black eye in the middle of there, he gives them one more little exclamation point at the end. He says, you know the commandments. You know the law. He says, you shall not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He's going through the, the checklist. And listen to the response of the rich young ruler. He responds to Jesus and he says, all of these I have kept since my youth. He says, that's great news. He says, because I have a 36 on the spiritual ACT. I'm doing phenomenal. Thank you, Jesus. And Jesus is just like me. But you know what? Instead of just continuing to, to point in that direction and keep walking on that track, trying to convince him. This is what he says to the rich young ruler. It's so good. Listen, look at, I'll read it for you as we walk through it, but listen to what Jesus says. It says in verse 21, Jesus looking at him. Jesus loved him, and Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. I want you to go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven Come and follow me. What a sweet invitation from Jesus. And listen to what response the rich young ruler gives. Verse 22. He was disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had a great many possessions. Jesus extends the invitation and the rich ruler turns his back, rejects the offer with a pocket full of possessions and a soul full of sorrows, he rejected Jesus. If you're taking notes today, today's title of the sermon is this, Following Jesus Wide Open. Follow Jesus Wide Open. I was at lunch this past week with uh, our next-gen pastor, Jay Stevenson. He was talking about Paul, the apostle Paul. He said, man, that man was just living life wide open for Jesus. And that's a real country term from my hometown in Tipton County that just means without any hindrance or any hesitation. Growing up in Tipton County, there's a road called Candy Lane out in Giltedge. It's got no stop signs, no red light no potholes, and no speed limit. And when you got a permit with your dad in the passenger seat, can we go down Candy Lane on the way home from church today? Because it is wide open. And that's the kind of life that Jesus has called us to live with him, to follow Jesus wide open. How do we do that? How do we follow Jesus wide open? Well, there's three things I got for you today, and the first one is this. Following Jesus requires open eyes. Following Jesus requires open eyes. I mean, the, the key phrase that we see at the beginning of this dialogue between this man and Jesus is this. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. But the conversation quickly reveals to us what's in the heart of the man. You see, this man no doubt had some sort of knowledge of Jesus, but man, he had such a deluded description of Jesus. He calls him good teacher. 
And can I just be honest with you? When I hear good teacher, I'm like, yes, he's a good teacher, but man, he's so much more than that. If I were to say Jesus is a good teacher, that'd be like comparing Stephen Curry to a good basketball player. I mean, yeah, but he's the nine-time all-star player. He's a four-time NBA champion, and he's the guy that convinced every middle school boy that they can only shoot the ball from the three-point line. He's more than a good basketball player. He's changed the game. And Jesus was so much more than a good teacher or a good rabbi or just a good guy. He was the savior of the man. He was the son of God and the sovereign king over all of creation. How do you see Jesus? How do you see him? With eyes wide open? You know, David refers to Jesus as the Lord is my shepherd, man. He says, he is my shepherd. He is my rock. He's my refuge. He's my deliverer. That's a man who knows Jesus. Isaiah talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And Matthew calls Jesus Emmanuel, my God with us. Mark calls Jesus the Son of Man, God like us. And Luke calls Jesus the Lord, God over us. And Luke, or not John, I mean, John calls him the Lamb of God, which means God for us. I mean, you read the Bible, you see people who just knew Jesus more than just a good teacher. He was the Savior of man. You see, in Mark 10, this man, he was more, he had his eyes set on the fire insurance policy rather than the policymaker. Let me show you a man who had 20-20 vision to see the Lord with eyes wide open. His name was Bartimaeus. He comes at the, it's the last story in Mark chapter 10. It's almost like a contrast to the rich young ruler. He was a blind man, and he's sitting down right outside of the road to Jericho. And he can't see. He's a blind beggar. He can't see the crowd coming, but there's no doubt he can hear the commotion. And so he's sitting there, and he hears all of a sudden, Jesus of Nazareth. And as he hears the name, it wells up in his heart, and he can't help but say it. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's the only time in the book of Mark that Jesus, or that Mark refers to Jesus as the son of David. The only time, and I believe it's because the blind man who didn't have the physical eyesight to see Jesus had the spiritual eyesight to see that this was the Messiah, the son of David, the descendant that was promised to bring salvation to mankind and to bring sight to the blind. That was the man. He was so pumped. And he's sitting there on the side of the road. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as Jesus was passing by, he didn't leave him. He paused, came over to the man, and said, your faith has made you well. And although he didn't have much, he was a beggar, remember? He didn't have much. In that moment, he left everything and followed Jesus to the very next town. I hope he followed Jesus for the rest of his life. Who saw Jesus with eyes wide open? Was it the rich ruler or was it the blind beggar? Who had the eyesight to see Jesus in his glory and his magnitude? When you see this banner up at the top of the room right here that says Jesus, some of those maybe online can't see it, but there's a banner that says the name of Jesus. When you see that name Jesus, who do you see? Do you see a friend? Do you see the Savior who died on the cross for your sins? 
Do you see the shepherd who makes you lie down in green pastures, who leads you beside still waters, who causes your cup to overflow, who when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil because you know your shepherd is with you? Who do you see? In the words of Bartholomew Orr on Friday night at the men's conference, wasn't that a good time, gentlemen? It was fun, wasn't it? He said, it's one thing to hear about Jesus, it's one thing to sing about Jesus, but it's a totally different thing to know Jesus. How do you follow Jesus with eyes wide open? Well, let me just tell you, if you're in church, watch online, or in the room today, you're already making a good first step. But let me tell you, church can only fill that void of unveiling who Jesus is once, maybe twice a week. You got another five or six more days, you can be putting your spiritual bifocals on and get to seeing Jesus. Let me just tell you how you can do that. Some of y'all may say, I don't know how to read the Bible, or maybe I've been on a Bible vacation for a long time. I'm just telling you, come on home and get in the Word. Because I'm telling you, you open up the Bible, pastor would say this, open up the Word, start reading, I promise, just say, Lord, would you show me Jesus today? And I promise he'll unveil it. Mysteries will be unfolded right in front of you when you spend time in the Word of God, abiding with Him. If, you, if, you, if you're saying, I've never, I don't even know where to begin, start in the book of Mark with me. It's like a comic book. It's like immediately this and immediately this. It's so cool about who Jesus is and what He's doing. Start in Mark. In over two weeks, just over two weeks, you will have read through the whole book of Mark, and I promise you will have a wealth of knowledge of who Jesus is. But here's the deal. May all of us in the room continue to have a wider scope and a sweeter sight on who Jesus is with our life. Following Jesus is not just about having open eyes to see the Savior. It's also about having open ears to hear the conviction of sin. Second point is this. Following Jesus requires open ears. Following Jesus requires open ears. Although the man had asked the right question, he had the wrong theology. And as I said before, Jesus avoids the question only to address the theology. He's really trying to get at what does this man truly believe about Jesus and what does he truly believe about man? Jesus says, why do you call me good? For there is no one good except God alone. It is the same lingo that Paul uses in Romans chapter 3 when he says, there is none righteous, not even one. All have rebelled against God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the same picture that he's painting with the words right here. And yet Jesus, in an effort, as I said earlier, to put that exclamation point on the end of it, of this pivotal truth, he points the man to the law, to the commandments. He says, you know the commandments, don't murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. If you read through the Gospels with us before, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the Ten Commandments. Because people thought that if you just do enough things, then the law would save you. And Jesus is saying, no. He's saying, you have heard it said, do not murder. And I'm telling you, if you've hated someone in your heart, you are guilty of murder already. He says, if you have heard it said before, you should not commit adultery. But man, if you were to look at another person with lust in your eyes or lust in your heart, you have already become guilty of adultery. Jesus is trying to tell them 
that all are sinners. This concept is a real challenge for people today. I'm just being honest with you. It's a real challenge because between all of the highlights and the headlines on the news, we see horrific mistakes all the time. And what it's led us to do is become desensitized, desensitized to our own sin. We get to the spot now where we say, well, if I haven't murdered someone or robbed a bank, I'm a pretty good person. And that's a lie. That is a lie. Jesus is letting the people know that whether it is in thought or in deed, all of us have sinned, and the young man does not hear it. He immediately responds in confidence, all of these I've kept from my youth. He believed he was a good person, and he believed that the law would save him. He thought that his obedience was going to get him a ticket into paradise. Listen, if you believe that strict obedience to the law is what's going to raise your body up when Jesus comes back, you have been bamboozled by the enemy. You've been lied to. The law was never meant to save you. The law cannot save you. The law was the flashlight to shine a bright light on the fact that you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior. It is the spiritual walkie-talkie that is ringing saying, Houston, we have a problem. That's what we're dealing with. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul paints a beautiful picture. Not beautiful, it's a terrible picture, but a very clear picture of who we are apart from the saving power of Jesus. Look at this. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were what? Dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want to show you this real quick. We were dead in our sins. And he says you were following, you were walking in this. Three things. Number one, you're walking in the ways of the world. You've been walking, following the prince of the power of the air. You know who that is? That's the enemy. That's the bad guys, all right? Following the enemy. And he says, you were also, later on, a little bit further, he says, you were carrying out the desires. You were following the passions of the flesh. Here's what I'm telling you, right? Real quick. You can keep it on the screen. Look at this. You were dead in your sins, following the ways of the world, following the ways of the enemy, and following the ways of the flesh. You had a worldly battle, you had a spiritual battle, and you had an inward battle. All of these had led you to a spot from Adam and Eve where all of mankind is broken, hopeless, and helpless apart from the love of Jesus. And Paul refers to these people, all of us of mankind, he refers to, he says, you were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Sons of disobedience and children of wrath. That's why Paul says we were slaves to sin. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you that... Houston, we have a problem. The rich young ruler was not the only one that didn't understand at first about their sin problem. There's a man named Peter. Y'all know him from the New Testament. But in Luke chapter 5, this man Peter was fishing. He'd been fishing all night long and he'd caught nothing. People say a bad day fishing beats a good day at work. That's a lie, all right? That is a lie that grandpas use to teach their grandkids to just smile and have fun. That ain't true, all right? Been there. Peter been fishing all night. He didn't catch nothing. 
And he's back at the shore, and he's mending his nets, and he's working it. And as he's at the shore, this Jesus has rolled up on the scene, and he is teaching the crowd right there at the shore. So much so that he climbs up in the boat, and he uses that bad boy as a pulpit. He's the world's first preaching pirate. That's Jesus right there at the edge of the stage, you know? He's preaching. And Peter's listening to this stuff, and as soon as Jesus finishes, he says, he dismisses the crowd, and he looks to Peter. And he says, why don't you put out your boat a little bit from the shore and let down your nets for a catch? And Peter's like, oh, okay. Kind of like a teenager when you tell him to do something. All right, mom and daddy, all right, here we go, you know. All right. He does it. Maybe not with a smile on his face, but he does it. He lets down the net, and I'm not kidding, in a moment, the boys hit the jackpot. In that moment, the net is full of fish. He's crying out to his brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, come on over here. The boat's full, the fish are here, come on, help us. And in a moment, the boat's breaking, the net's, or the boat's sinking, the net's breaking, fish are flopping. It's a scene, a real ordeal. In that moment, look at what Peter does in response to seeing the Savior. This guy wasn't just a teacher on the shore. He realized he was the Messiah and the Lord. Look at this, Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Pastor been saying when you get the O Lord back in our prayers, this was a moment for Peter. He says, Depart from me, get away from me. I'm a sinner, O Lord. And there's a moment where when he had a glimpse of who Jesus was, he had an even greater glimpse of who he was. Let me ask you, when you have a higher view of Jesus, does that foster a harsher view of your sin? As you grow in a higher view of Jesus, does that foster a harsher view of your sin? For the rich young ruler, man, he didn't need a PhD or a seminary degree to follow Jesus. But man, if he didn't have open eyes to see the Savior and open ears to hear the conviction of sin, then there's no way he's going to relinquish his treasures and follow Jesus. There's just no way. Which leads me to our third point today. Following Jesus doesn't require just open eyes and open ears, but also requires open hands. Following Jesus requires open hands. Jesus showed such compassion to the man. I mean, it was such a a sweet moment, man. It says in that text, Mark 10, that Jesus, he looked at the man. That Jesus loved the man, despite his bad theology and despite his pompous pride in his heart. He loved him. So much so that he invited him. Jesus invited him and said, I want you to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow me and be blessed. He says, I want you to go and sell and give away all that kingdom you built up. Get rid of it. He said, then I want you to come and follow me in my inner circle, man. Learn from me. You've been living and loving all these things in the world. Come and live and learn from me. And he says, if you do that, you will have treasure in heaven. 
And that guy, he, was, he was saying, you've been after this heaven thing? He says, I will secure you a spot in eternity and I'll secure some treasures for you too. Come on. Man, what an invitation from Jesus. Do you know that same invitation's for you today? It's the same invitation for you and me. He looks at you, he loves you, and he's inviting you. Don't be like the rich young ruler here in this moment. He receives the invitation, the offer of a lifetime, and he walks away, as I said earlier, with a pocket full of possessions and a soul full of sorrow. I saw a video the other day. I was showing it to my wife because I thought it was funny. And uh, it's not a great quality, so don't judge me. Uh, I didn't make it. All right, it's a game show. And uh, there is a family, I'm going to set it up for you, there's a family where they take the parents, put them backstage, and they bring the kid out front, and they get to choose between two different options. And whatever they choose is what the family gets. So, check it out. You could go on a family trip to Dubai. Well, let me tell you, Dubai is a tropical desert climate. Average summer highs of 41 degrees. Wow. Do you like it warm? Do you like a beach holiday? Yeah. It's one of the most visited cities in the world. It's a construction mecca. Shall we have a look at your options? Yeah. Okay, let's have a look at option number two. You could go to Dubai or... You could stay at home with your very own giraffe. <laughs> Do you want to go on a beautiful family holiday or would you like that giraffe in your bedroom at home? What do you think? What do you fancy? I want the giraffe. If I was in the audience, I'd be shouting, don't pick the giraffe, pick Dubai and take me and my wife with you. All right, we want to go. I can't imagine what the disciples are thinking as they're watching this invitation from Jesus play out and he is turning his back in rejection to the offer. I bet the disciples were like, hey man, you sure you don't want to just take like a walk around the block maybe? Think about it. You don't want to like phone a friend or make a pros and cons list maybe, you know? Or maybe they were just thinking, don't pick the giraffe, man. Pick Jesus. I bet the disciples were just blown away by this moment. And it actually says that the disciples were perplexed. They were, as the young students said, they, they were paused. Their jaws were on the ground, just frozen. Jesus goes on immediately after this story, and he begins to teach the disciples. And he says to me, he says, listen, man, I'm paraphrasing here, but you can see that in the text after. He says, People of possessions and positions will have a very difficult time entering the kingdom of heaven. And he says it's, it's not because wealth or positions are bad. He says it's because they're going to have a real hard time opening their eyes, opening their ears, and opening their hands to surrender to Jesus. They're going to struggle. And the disciples are blown away by this. They're like, this guy would have been the all-star on the team. I mean, why would you not want to bring him into the 13 disciples now? Let's make it happen, Captain. Like, this is a great addition. If he were to show up with that kind of resume and resources, we could feed the 5,000, no miracles needed. This would be great, you know? 
And Jesus is trying to show them that he's not looking for the kingdom of man. He's looking for the man. He's not looking for the kingdom you've built. He wants the person behind it. He wants you. That's who he's looking for. And immediately after that conversation, Peter speaks up and he says, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. I don't know if Peter was in this moment trying to ask the question of, man, is it worth it? I don't know if Peter was bragging. I don't know if Peter was just mentioning a statement. But I know this, that Jesus responded, man, with a promise that I believe the whole church today ought to be encouraged by. I know there's people in this room that have said, man, I've left jobs, I've left salary increases, I've left my home or where my family grew up, or maybe people that are online, maybe people that are across the mission field that are doing stuff with the nations, ministering. They've left a lot of things for the sake of the gospel. Maybe there's preachers in the room or pastors or life group leaders who say, man, I've, I've sacrificed not just the destruction of my home and every deed now coming up, but I've sacrificed other things to come follow Jesus, you know? And Jesus is saying, I know. I know you counted up the cost to follow me, and I want you to know today, it is so worth it. It is so worth it. Listen to what Peter says going into Jesus right here. It's in Matthew, or in Mark 10, starting in verse 28. Check it out real quick on the screen for us. Peter began to say to him, see, we left everything and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you. He's saying, listen, you can take this to the bank. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands. That's a big list. He says all these things. He basically just, whatever you've left in your life, there's no one who's left all these things. For my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive double, triple, a hundredfold? That's what he says. You're going to get a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecutions, there may be some trials on the journey. It's not going to be rainbows and butterflies, the whole thing. But I'm telling you, you will receive a hundredfold in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus was telling his disciples, I know you counted up the cost to follow me. I know you left your boat and your fish and your home and your family to follow me, but I'm here to tell you some good news. Listen, it is so worth it. It is so worth it. Anybody out there who's a believer who said, I've sacrificed some things, counted the cost, and I'm telling you, it is so worth it. Anybody with me today? I got such a reason to praise the Lord because he has blessed me beyond anything I can think or imagine. The kingdom of Corey does not compare to the kingdom of God. He is so good. Our God is so good. And that same God is wanting to invite you into something today.